Despite considerable progress in reducing child mortality, nearly 6 million children under the age of 5 die each year. Millions more are poorly nourished and still go to bed hungry. The global evidence base for effective interventions to meet these and related challenges is mostly weak, scattered and unsupported by rigorous evidence. However, at the same time, there is a growing recognition of the need for a more evidence-informed approach and a conversation about how to improve coordination amongst those interested in improved evidence-informed decision-making for children. Welcome back to our research-focused podcast hosted by UNICEF's Office of Research at Innocenti in Florence, Italy. I'm Angie Lee and I'm delighted to be joined today by Kerry Albright, Innocenti's Chief of Knowledge Management and Research Facilitation. Kerry has been developing a mega map on child well-being in low and middle income countries in partnership with the Campbell Collaboration. Today we'll be talking with Kerry about the mega map and some of the findings she can share with us ahead of its launch in New York at the end of June. Kerry, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. You're jetting off to New York soon to officially launch the new mega map. Um, I am. <laughs> yes, it sounds very exciting at a roundtable event. Yes. We'll discuss the event a little bit more later, but before that, I'd love to hear a bit more about the gap map itself. Mm-hmm. How did the idea come about to create this gap map with the Campbell collaboration? Well, much as I'd love to uh, claim all credit, Angie, it was actually uh, the Campbell collaboration's idea. They, they approached us. Um, they had an idea really to create two global pooled funds, one on child welfare um, and one on children at risk. And the reason they said that they really wanted to do this was that um, basically the the current global evidence base for effective interventions to improve child well-being in low middle income countries is really pretty weak, to be honest. Um, it's pretty scattered, it's, it's often very poorly translated, um, which makes it very difficult for policymakers and practitioners to use it. And also most widely, or many widely used approaches, I should say, are actually um, unsupported by rigorous evidence. So we had a situation where um, many agencies were commissioning systematic reviews of global evidence, and increasingly agencies in different countries, or even agencies in the same country, uh, were commissioning reviews on the same subject. Um, And this obviously isn't just a waste of resources and a duplication of effort, but also many of those reviews didn't meet best practice quality standards. Um, and were leading to either sharing of incorrect findings or sharing of low-quality information. Um, So what Campbell had suggested doing was basically creating a global repository of of quality, rigorous evidence of what works to reduce child deaths and improve child welfare or, or well-being. And they approached us on this, and we discussed it a little bit and then felt that actually the the natural first step would be to produce a a map, a mega map, so an overview of the state of evidence synthesis in this area. And so what we've we've basically done is the mega map, the so-called mega map, synthesizes evidence like existing evidence gap maps and systematic reviews to show what evidence synthesis is available. And we felt that that was really important because obviously relying on single studies can, can um, introduce an incredible amount of bias. And a mega map, you know, all the information is there in, in, in one place. You can get a really good aggregate view, a very good balanced view of the evidence. It can help you look at how you might reconcile competing claims, etc. 
So what we hope to do with the mega map is really to identify areas in which there's um, ample evidence to guide policy and practice, but also to identify gaps in the evidence base and to present it in a really user-friendly, interactive way to allow for intuitive playing around with the evidence and, and to explore it, really. What makes a mega map as opposed to a, a gap map? What's the, what's the difference between the two? It's pretty much a map of maps. So rather than sort of including single, single studies, primary studies within it, it's a map of what evidence gap maps, systematic reviews already exist out there. So what evidence synthesis products already exist out there. So it's a, yeah, a bird's eye overview, if you like. What were the parameters around creating the gap map? It was really largely down to the work of our uh, collaborators, Howard White and Ashrita Saranit, the Campbell collaboration, who undertook most of the work. Where UNICEF came on board really was to help have a wider consultation around the map, to map it against some of our in-house strategic priorities, and also to sort of enhance awareness and interest internally and externally. So we had a couple of internal webinars. We've brought on an external advisory group of experts in this area. Uh, And then we also launched a pilot version of the mega map at last year's 3AE London Evidence Week where actually people, practitioners who are likely to be interested in in the map had a chance to engage with it and to play with it and to really see whether or not the, the map worked for them or didn't. So we've had a chance to get some really good user feedback. In terms of parameters, we felt that we should focus on low and middle income country contexts because that was a really big evidence gap. A lot of the evidence out there was was from high-income countries, so we excluded that by and large. And as I just mentioned, we also decided to focus through the the mega-map lens on um, evidence synthesis mapping. So so there's no single studies um, included within it, uh, just systematic reviews. And so the mega-map itself now covers 302 systematic reviews, organized by six intervention categories and six outcome domains. You kind of briefly touched on child well-being earlier on, but why focus on child well-being in particular? Sure. Well, I mean, obviously for UNICEF, children are our our core mandate, so it was quite inevitable, I think, that that Campbell would, would think about us as a partner. As Howard and Ashrita would say, I mean, for for multiple reasons, really, why they thought about the idea of the Global Pool Fund to start with. So, you know, despite quite considerable progress in reducing child mortality, still nearly six million under fives die early each year. There are still millions of children who are poorly nourished and, and go to bed hungry. The quality of education remains poor um, and coverage of early child development programs is still far too low. And then children are at risk from multiple violations of their, of their rights, child labor, early marriage, uh, violence and sexual exploitation. And, you know, disadvantaged kids, disadvantaged children become disadvantaged adolescents and adults. So you just perpetuate intergenerational poverty. UNICEF Innocenti has already created an evidence gap map on adolescent well-being. And so did any learnings from creating this gap map influence decisions when creating this, this mega map? Not explicitly, but at the same time, evidence gap maps are a relatively new tool. Not that many people know how to do them. And so as a community, we're still very much learning you know, what works around gap maps, particularly from a user perspective. And I think, you know, as, as technology evolves and we're able to make more advances with users being able to engage with the tool, etc., I think that will shape how people actually utilize it in their day-to-day decision-making. 
I think the other big piece of learning that came from from the adolescent well-being gap map we produced was really as I mentioned earlier, thinking that we really were clear from the outset that we wanted to link it a lot more closely into ongoing discussions with broader stakeholders around evidence for children more generally and how we could collaborate better around that. So that was built into the process from an early stage, lots of opportunities to consult, to interact, to show prototypes, to get feedback, etc. before we go to the final launch next week. And this gut map has already been tried and tested, as you were saying. And it sounds like there's already a lot of collaboration between, you know, the, the Campbell collaboration and 3IE you've mentioned as yeah. well. So you're kind of building this this community of making it a stronger tool and sharing learnings. Yeah, I mean, I think internationally there's a growing both interest and understanding of the value of evidence synthesis. And, and those are two players who've been very staunch advocates for a long time around around the value of evidence. I guess what we're trying to bring together, both through the mega map and through the roundtable more broadly, is not only the the evidence synthesis practitioners, but also perhaps people who haven't been exposed to that way of thinking, to to different policymakers, UN colleagues, um, NGOs, etc., to share to share some of their experiences with evidence synthesis. Why was the decision taken to map against the areas of the new strategic plan? Yeah, I mean, well, this was a key factor for us deciding to come on board and actually work with Campbell on this. Um, It was really important for us. We didn't have huge amounts of money, but actually we thought that we could use that in a really strategic way to to enhance the, the utility and the value of the mega map. So we've been doing quite a lot of work within UNICEF internally to try and make our own organization more evidence-based. You know, people are always incredibly busy. They don't always have the time to, to source and appraise the latest evidence. So we had the idea to basically make it as simple for people as possible to access that relevant evidence to inform new policies and programming decisions. And so our, our own program at UNICEF over, over the next five years is going to focus around five key high-level goals in our strategic plan. So in discussing what the mega map should look like, we tried to make sure that both the, the intervention and the outcome domains were mapped against those five goals and the, the underlying results areas. So that it was really very easy to see very quickly where there was an existing body of evidence that had already been synthesized in those key areas for UNICEF where there was quite a lot of evidence that hadn't yet been synthesized and, and was ripe for summary, or indeed where there, where there were gaps and there was very little evidence and, and where new primary research was needed. So it was a, it was a strategic decision that was a, we felt was a win-win for both of us. Campbell had an immediate ready-made audience and UNICEF staff. We, through working with Campbell, helped to strengthen our own goals about being able to make it very easy for our staff to access evidence when they're so busy. So having highlighted some of those key areas, can you share with us any of the key findings from the, from the mega map? Where was evidence the strongest or where do the, the biggest gaps lie? Sure. I mean, this might take a little while just thinking about the, <laughs> the, each of the goals in turn. So around the every child survives and thrives, maybe not a surprise to, to most people listening, that most of the evidence we came across in the mega map generally was uh, related to health and nutrition interventions um, and usually of pretty high quality. There's a strong tradition of systematic reviews amongst, amongst those sectors. 
We found far less on early childhood education and, and parenting. So lots of evidence on community health, antenatal care, nutritional supplementation, but actually relatively little evidence on, on severe acute malnutrition and especially on mental health. And as Howard and Ashrita pointed out in, in, in the summary um, for this particular goal, most of the mental health evidence base is hugely skewed towards developed countries. So 90% of trials on mental health occur in developed countries. So, so that was a massive gap. On Every Child Learns, most of the evidence was really concentrated in educational interventions and, and learning and development outcomes, um, with the largest number of studies relating to cognitive development and to learning and achievement. Um, there was a, yeah, a reasonable amount of evidence on, on teacher training and incentives, but where we were really lacking evidence is around remedial education, non-formal education, etc. And the weakest evidence base at all in the education or every child learns sector is around what works in systemic intervention system strengthening. And there were also no systematic reviews of education delivery in, in humanitarian settings or of inclusive education for people with, with disabilities. The third goal, really around violence and exploitation, generally much weaker um, in terms of evidence than health or education. You know, even, even so, there was some evidence on um, gender-based violence, violence against women and girls, including in humanitarian contexts. And a subset of these were looked at intimate partner violence. But the biggest gaps here really were on a lack of studies on what works to prevent child trafficking. There was a little bit of evidence on, on what works in terms of prevention of early marriage and female genital mutilation and cutting. A few, very few reviews looking at programs to ad address child labor, no published studies at all on the impact of birth registration. So generally the evidence base for this particular goal was, was very weak and, and really needed strengthening. The fourth one around every child lives in a safe and clean environment, which was looking at things like water and sanitation and hygiene, air pollution, safe places to play, etc., was really very poorly populated within the mega map. So the WASH interventions, particularly looking at health outcomes, were relatively okay. Quite a few of those, I can't remember, I think maybe about 20 from, from memory. But hardly any studies at all to help identify effective strategies to reduce the exposure of children to indoor and outdoor air pollution, to reduce the risk of accidents, including road, road traffic accidents, or to reduce the risk of exposure to, to toxic materials. And then finally, the, the last goal about um, every child has an equitable chance in life as with the mega map as a whole, the review, any systematic reviews that explicitly looked at the goal of ensuring every child has a chance to an equitable life were, were mostly focused around health and nutrition. There was only one dedicated systematic review with respect to equity in um, early childhood development, none at all on social protection, rights and governance, and overall just a, a very small number of, of systematic reviews explicitly focused on equity or on programs for disadvantaged groups or those who face discrimination. For example, none at all on the evidence of effective interventions for, for children from indigenous groups. So with the exception of the, of the health and um, nutrition sectors, uh, quite a lot of evidence gaps, a lot more work to be done, both in synthesizing evidence and in generating new areas. Those gaps are... Pretty, ma <laughs> pretty major gaps, yeah. Yeah, yeah but I'm sure mm. even mm. just your explanation there provides a lot of inspiration for, I mean, obviously the gaps exist for a reason in terms of... 
you know, challenging environments like humanitarian yeah. contexts, but it should provide, you know, a good bit of inspiration for people to go out and, and collect that and do research. Sure. I mean, and just to recap, to bear in mind, obviously, that the what we're mapping in this particular evidence gap map is evidence syntheses. So there could indeed be primary studies in those areas, but there hasn't been any systematic um, synthesis of the evidence base in those areas. That's an important point. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks to support from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the gap map will be a sort of living map mm. and it will be updated annually over the lifetime of this new strategic plan. But what does this mean for the ongoing relevance and the utility of the map for decision making? The importance can't be underestimated. It's hugely exciting. Basically, rather than just being a one, a once-off snapshot of evidence at a particular point in time, by being a living map, it's going to be um, updated at least once a year over the next four years, which means that any time that UNICEF colleagues want to come and actually look at the state of the evidence in their particular area of relevance for programming, they'll have easy access to the, to the latest evidence. And also, thanks to Gates funding, we're making it open source, openly available. So it will be available not only for UNICEF staff, but for anybody who has an interest um, in conducting more evidence or evidence synthesis for children. Yeah, we're really excited about that. It's an unusual thing that I think the evidence synthesis community are trying to do more generally to find funds to keep maps updated and living. Often it's quite hard to find the funding for that, so we're very grateful and very excited about that. The Mega Map is being officially launched in New York at an Evidence for Children roundtable with the Campbell Collaboration and the International Rescue Committee. The event itself is kind of a larger conversation around evidence for children and there'll be external NGOs and other bodies um, attending. What do you think have been the biggest obstacles with regards using evidence to support policy and practice that protects children? Yeah, interesting question. I mean, unfortunately, uh, multiple barriers and, and people won't be surprised to hear, I think, that the biggest barrier of all, which certainly applies to UNICEF staff, but I'm sure applies outside, is, is simply the pressure of time. Um, I mentioned earlier that um, people don't often have time to go and source and appraise new sources of evidence to, to help inform their decision making. And actually finding time to slow down and reflect and, and think about what we've learned is also incredibly difficult. We haven't traditionally had a strong enough focus on evidence synthesis w within UNICEF and we need to get better both at publishing our own learning externally rather than just in internal reports but also thinking about how we contextualize the, the evidence that we're producing um, and set it within the broader body of evidence being produced globally. Um, so that's definitely, a, within UNICEF at least, a, a big barrier. Also, there are discussions really around whose who's evidence counts, and the evidence community generally has been tied up in debates around this for, for a long time, both whether you know, evidence should be considered beyond systematic reviews and impact evaluations, locally generated evidence, etc., when do we actually have to be pragmatic and think about what counts as good enough evidence in circumstances such as fragile conflict-afflicted states or humanitarian contexts where it's really very difficult to generate evidence? As I mentioned earlier, both evidence generation and evidence synthesis have, have suffered from a, from a massive underinvestment. And even where this evidence is being produced, often uh, globally it's not being disaggregated for children or adolescents, yet they experience the world in a completely different way from, from adults. So I think that's, that's really important. 
And then generally, I think amongst people who have been producing evidence for children, there's been uh, little uh, collaboration, maybe, or certainly little systematic information sharing between those who are advocating for a more evidence-informed approach to child rights and well-being. So I think it's really important that we actually think about how we collaborate more so that we don't reinvent the wheel, so that we do make findings more accessible and and so that we collectively um, identify priority evidence gaps. And that's why we're we're very excited about the the roundtable next week with the opportunity to, to talk to many of the people who are working in this space. What do you think is needed to increase the use of evidence in policymaking? I mean, I think even amongst those who recognise the value of evidence for children, there's been a, a much greater focus on evidence generation, perhaps, than on communication and use. Crudely speaking, there's been more of a focus on a supply of quality evidence than thinking about the demand or the skills to maybe appraise evidence and to, and to use it. So UNICEF certainly will be concentrating a lot more on this demand and st- skills space side of, side of it in, in coming years, including looking at how we might develop strategic partnerships with those who are working in the capacity strengthening space to, to build those skills for appraising and using evidence and how we might go about building or supporting a, a more evidence-informed infrastructure to inform child rights decision-making amongst our partner governments and countries. And then I think maybe generally we need to to pay far greater attention to the, to the politics of ev- evidence and to organisational learning. I think there's been a, a tendency sometimes to think that If we lay out the evidence, of course, people will just come and use it without maybe thinking about some of the political realities. So we're working hard within UNICEF, but also amongst our partners to to build an evidence culture that means we're we're not afraid to learn from failure as well as from from success. We're looking at ways that we can maybe make our programming more more flexible or or more agile um, that can be adapted as new evidence or learning emerges. We're also looking increasingly at areas like implementation research, learning by doing looking at moving that out of the health sector, what it would mean or what it would look like in in other sectors, and to try and make sure that research isn't seen as a sort of separate elite silo or stream, but is actually something that can be of direct relevance and real value to, to programming. And then finally, I mentioned earlier, I think that issue about, you know, what's what's good enough evidence, what counts. And this is particularly important for us in, in humanitarian contexts. And we're going to be producing a new series of methodological briefs on what is good enough evidence next year. And I think that will be really quite exciting to get involved in. There's lots of innovations going on in this space at the moment. I think we really, as a community, need to get much better at actually documenting and demonstrating the value of evidence-informed approaches, better at uh, documenting the impacts and our returns on investment for this if uh, we want to uh, prove the case rather than just expect people to believe in it because we do. So at this roundtable event in New York what do you hope this event will add to the gap map itself and also around the broader conversation of child well-being in general? Well obviously we want to to raise awareness of the mega map amongst UNICEF staff, but actually also through working with Campbell and, and the International Rescue Committee, we're also hoping to bring together a, a wide range of, of key stakeholders who are interested in evidence for children more generally across the academic community, 
including evidence synthesis specialists, but researchers more generally, uh, child-focused NGOs, UN staff, donor partners and, and advocates for scientific thinking, evidence literacy, if you like. But as well as launching the map, we also want it to be a, a discussion on both the value of and practical challenges to implementing evidence synthesis approaches, the need to maybe think a lot more about evidence architecture for in- international development, how we link evidence products people and systems to to make it as easy as it's possible to be to um, access relevant evidence by potential users we're also going to have a session where we look at some of the barriers to better use of evidence for children and how we can convert evidence skeptics and then really we would like to come out of that some discussion of thinking around you know what a community of practice of people that are interested in evidence for children would look like? How do we ensure that we don't reinvent the wheel, all commission the same thing, um, not identify the most important evidence gaps? So I hope that we'll get some way towards thinking about how we could collaborate much better as key advocates for for evidence for children worldwide and, and continue to collaborate in coming years on that. After the launch, which is happening on the 27th and 28th of June, so next week as we record, what are the next steps? Well, we have produced five draft research briefs mapped against each of the areas of the strategic plan. Those are going to be um, put out in draft format at the roundtable and discussed. And whatever feedback we get on those, we'll incorporate and, and launch later later this year. There's also going to be further promotion about the mega map itself, include, including a webinar and a panel session at the forthcoming Global Evidence and Implementation Summit in Melbourne, uh, taking place in October this year. Um, and then, of course, the next round of updates will already start to begin to begin early next year. We really hope that uh, the people that come along to the roundtable will also share our passion to make sure that we coordinate better around evidence for children and look for a mechanism to keep the dialogue going. So I'm very excited about that. It's the first time that a a dialogue has been organized on this scale around evidence synthesis approaches for children. So very excited and very much looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to hearing your reports back. So Kerry, when will the gap map be available and where can our listeners find it? So it'll be available pretty much straight away um, in draft format, launched for the roundtable. You'll be able to find it on UNICEF Office of Research in Lucenti's website, as well as on a special platform that's been set up in collaboration with the Campbell Collaboration and uh, Epicenter. So in both places and will be regularly updated over the next four years. Great. Kerry, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, the pleasure and welcome any feedback or discussion from listeners.